You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. We are going to fall in love today with a marine iguana. Mm. I promise. And... What can they teach us? But there's really two biomes in the Galapagos Islands. So you do have this volcanic, rocky, rough, harsh terrain. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Angie, we're going south to the Galapagos Islands. To my bucket list dream place. I know, I know, I know. I'm so dying to go down there. I'm so dying. I know. In a couple years, it's going to be John and I's 10th anniversary. So if you're listening, Ooh. honey, hint, 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 hint. <laughs> in the background. I saw him in the background. <laughs> uh, so no, I, you know, ah, uh, the Galapagos, it's just anybody who's a zoologist or animal scientist or just loves nature. Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely one for the bucket list. And I had a lot of fun actually learning about it this week in preparation for the marine iguana. I know, I know, I know. This is a, a fantastic species that you picked. I mean, it's also called the Galapagos iguana mm-hmm. or the saltwater iguana. This thing is radical. It is radical. It oh, is the physiology so is just incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just like anything else in the Galapagos, right? As we uh, as we move forward in the many years to come in this podcast, if they keep allowing us on air, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll cover a lot more species from the Galapagos. We've got the blue-footed booby, the mm-hmm. obviously the Galapagos tortoises. Right. But but yeah, this is our first one, and I, and we picked a fun one. It's cool physiology, fun behavior, amazing looks. Some yeah. would call it, including Charles oh. Dar, including Charles yeah. Darwin, who called it hideous looking, hideous, and the most disgusting <laughs> clumsy lizard. I know. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's, what? it's awesome. It is uh, awesome. I mean, it's probably at first glance, it's probably not as charmingly cute as a blue-footed bo- booby or, like yeah. I said, a, a yeah. Galapagos tortoise, but. 
we are going to fall in love today with marine iguana. Mm-hmm. I promise. And and we'll take you on a journey through iguana land because they're very near and dear to my heart. I got to work with not marine iguanas, but just mm-hmm. your common green iguanas when I was at the zoo and not necessarily being a reptile uh, keeper and or caretaker before I was at the zoo, I didn't really have an appreciation for many reptiles in general. Mm-hmm. But I think for me, what really turned me on about reptiles were iguanas in general and their huge personalities uh, when you when you when you get to know them and work with them. And so yes, I've been been dying to do this species and I want to give a huge shout out to Damon Wielden from the UK. He actually uh, recommended the species many months ago back in March, but we're a little backlogged. So uh, we're finally getting to it, Damien. So thank you very much. This is an awesome, awesome species. It is. It is. And it's just, I mean, the the ecological adaptions are just, oh, we're going to have fun talking about this today. And Thinking about the Galapagos, because you're right, it's it's just one of those areas in the world where people are just fascinated because of Charles Darwin and his trip on the Beagle in 1835. And his finches. I didn't even mention the finches. Right. Yeah. 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 His finches, which were mockingbirds. But, you know, we'll cover one of those one of those species one of these days uh, that he really looked into. But it's just such a unique biome. And you were I was going to ask you before we really got rolling on this. You were, did you go to Ecuador? Because they're part of Ecuador. Yes, Chris. It's actually a sad, devastating story, but I'll make a quicker version of it. I'm sorry. No, it's not. I enjoyed my travels through South America and towards the end of my uh, my three-month trip throughout South America with my best friend, Nani, uh, many years ago, we ended up in Ecuador and Mm -hmm. we were in Quito, and then we went to Banos um, and we had heard about the opportunity to go to the Galapagos on the cheap. This was many years ago. So we were on a tight, tight, tight shoestring budget in order to be able to spend the most time traveling throughout South America. And there was no way we could afford either a plane ride or like a fancy boat ride to the Galapagos. So we had heard that you can hitch on freight ships. They actually okay. let people come on there for really cheap and but it takes a long time it took like a week or something or more days than we had to like get out there Mm -hmm. and and then get back eventually than we had time on that trip so we punted it and instead we did some cool hikes in this uh on the outside of the city called banos and we had a wonderful time in ecuador it's a beautiful country but now that I'm older and it's harder for me to travel because of work and family obligations and things like that, it's uh, it's kind of sad to me that I was so, so close, close and we just <laughs> we just didn't have the money to make it. Or we probably could have figured it out if yeah. I put more put it on a credit card or something. Yeah. Like I probably could have made it work, but I just we just did. I didn't have the the gumption even the back then. Um, yeah. Th- yeah. Yeah. Back then. Or th- and I think it was a time element too. So, and there's always two people traveling, traveling. So we had to kind of pick and choose. Um, what well, we I think, I think do, the but- bottom line is for our listeners, if you're that close, 
you know, put it on a credit card and do it. Yes, yes. <laughs> Pay for yes, it later. But Money's money. I know. But I do think that things work out for a reason because many years later, I met mm-hmm. my dear husband, John, mm-hmm. who, of course, is also a biology, zoology guy. And so he's never been. And so I think it'll be apropos if we go together yeah. on our 10-year anniversary. Hint, hint, honey. Hint, hint. <laughs> <I'll tell him. laughs> Am I subtle or what? Yeah. No, I know. Chris, can you send him a private message and be like, dude. You're going to the Galapagos. You better. <laughs> <laughs> Grandparents are taking care of the boys. You're going to the Galapagos. Yeah. Well, they're just, it's an amazing, unique geography. I mean, these are volcanic islands. They're on the Pacific side of South America. There's 18 main islands. I didn't realize that many. Uh, three smaller islands and then like 107 little rocks or inlets, islets and things like that around there. And we'll, we'll talk about some of the main geography. There are definitely some main bigger islands there. Again, part of the country of Ecuador, it's about 500 miles or 900 kilometers off its coast. So it's not right there. It's, it's, well, far. that's, yeah. I remember these freight ships or whatever we were going to hitch a ride on were going to take a while. Yeah. Um, so that was once again one of the other hesitations. It, it yeah. wasn't even the hitching part. Uh, truth be told, I did a little bit of hitching uh, throughout South America and had right. no issues with it. <laughs> I was never alone. We were never alone. It would usually be a lot of us travelers together, but sometimes right. this was years ago. The world was a lot safer place when I was yeah, younger. Yeah, Chris. I know. walking in the snow. Yeah, she did walk in the snow to school in Michigan. <laughs> backwards because yeah, backwards. the wind was so bad. <laughs> Poor little AJ. Yeah, that's, my dad used to always tell us that he's like, oh, when I was a kid, I had to ride my horse backwards in the snowstorm to school. And I'm like, dad, you didn't even have a horse. So just, I know. <laughs> just give it up. <laughs> so what's interesting about the Galapagos too, Angie, is that there wasn't really humans that settled there. You know, from Correct. South America. Yeah. Like, you know, there was. Un- they untouched. Right, right. I mean, there was some evidence of humans being there, like Incas, they think might have landed there. Some debate when and who, but uh-huh. nobody settled there. And right. it wasn't until the Europeans came. Spaniards, the first time in 1535. And then obviously over the next few hundred years, they had little whaling stations and things like that uh, that were on there. But I mean, incredible amount of biodiversity it's going to be fun delving into this a little bit more before we get there real quick and i know we, we kind of had a story on, on angie to, to ecuador which is always fun but just a couple shout outs real quick to alexa and paul from varmints and alexa they joined us on patreon this week so thank you you know I oh guess, uh, thank you love you yeah. guys <laughs> yes they uh, get one one cup of quote unquote nice coffee a month helps us out and we're giving back to conservation. I just sent well, it's not a ch- I say send a check. I actually sent it uh, via PayPal, but uh, O Search, you know, um, sent them some money. Love those guys are doing great yeah. work. They're yeah. catching and tagging sharks right now as we speak because I follow them on Instagram. So yeah, O Search is amazing. I know, and, and so we- our listeners sent them money this month. Yes, that you did. You did. It's huge. A little bit of chum in the water, you know, so mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever they use to get them. Uh, so we did that. Uh, Angie and I just posted our, our news episode for September. I mean, a lot of political discussion, just discussing environmental policy here in the United States and abroad. So check that out. And, you know, we've got some amazing interviews. We gave a little bit of insight there on Patreon, what we've got uh, coming here pretty quick. But, you know, thank you for your support. And and I we understand, you know, if, if you can't afford giving us a cup of coffee a month, nice coffee. It's not a cheap cup of coffee. I get that. Uh, but just do us a favor. You know, can you just share this episode with a friend or on social media? 
uh, we see you doing that. We, we appreciate it. Every time I see it on Instagram or Facebook, I just, my heart warms. Thank you. We love you. And then Angie's favorite request is always, please rate and review us on iTunes. Yes. So I got to give a huge shout out this week to Reborn Goods, who recently gave us an amazing review, uh, talking all about our octopus episode and Immortal Jellyfish, and says that he wants to see more episodes about sea life. So thank you, Reborn Goods, and for rating us and reviewing us, especially with your awesome review. We will put more sea life on the books. ASAP. Oh, we've got some. We've got some. We've got some coming. And oh yeah, just real quick. Yeah, on the front page of iTunes Science, we're on there. If you go, uh, if you go to iTunes, go to the science category, and you go down to nature, we're like third or fourth in. So we're awesome. on the front page yeah. of iTunes now. So well, that's really awesome. For and us. it's due to it's due to our listeners to help. Uh, review us because I think that's right. probably the algorithm I would imagine that they use to Absolutely. help pick some of the popular ones. And so uh, also a big shout out to Monks of Sorrow who recently reviewed us on iTunes as well right. earlier this week. So thank you. Please keep them coming. We, like I said, it, it really, it really helps circulate the podcast because we are educators first and foremost mm-hmm. and scientists too. And of course, and anim- passionate animal lovers uh, and conservationists. So, so the more viewership we have, the better for the animals for sure. So one question, Angie, I have for you regarding iguanas is, are they venomous? And and can that be dangerous to humans if they are? So Okay, well, I have been bit on several occasions. And you're still here. <laughs> several occasions. <laughs> and I'm still here. So yes, there were um uh there was one sassy lady at the zoo named Piccadilly. Uh, and so she, she, and a lot of, a lot of it was my novice handling skills. She was a big, Mm -hmm. big girl. And she, I think had come from a not so good situation when the zoo had taken her in. Um, and so, yeah, she, uh, had, you know, just some, we, we had to work some things out her and I, Um, but yeah, this, this, this episode is definitely, definitely for me dedicated to Piccadilly and then Topeka. She was a gentle, sweet angel that I worked with. So, uh, and, and several others as well, but anyways, yes, I am still standing. So, I don't, you're, you're voting it's definitely no. not, All right. <laughs> I don't know. No. The, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't know the first half, but the okay. second half, I, I think I know the answer. Uh, think back to Komodo dragons. We'll get, we'll, we'll, we'll revisit Ooh, this issue. We'll revisit this. Right. issue. Right. Okay. I love it. I so, love it. Okay. Now iguanas, before we describe the marine iguana, again, these are lizards. Mm-hmm. That includes some of the new world iguanas, but this is, reading this trying to get their natural history and where they are is that right now like a lot of these species we're discovering especially the last couple years it seems like they're all getting reclassified because with genetics it's completely revamping iguana day the family right now so they're completely revamping the family it's kind of up in the air so the classical new world iguanas doesn't and related lizards doesn't seem like that's going to hold true very much longer as they start to reclassify a lot of these animals due to genetics. I mean, genetics, they're mapping them. They're, they're doing the DNA, looking at it, comparing it. And yeah, they're getting so I, much better look at the family tree. Well, I had, and so my take on it, that there are about 44 types of iguanas, give or take. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what's really a key take home message of this entire podcast today is of those 
44, give or take, as Chris mentioned, it's changing as we speak. Half, half of them mm-hmm. are either endangered or vulnerable, according right. to the IUCN. Right, half. right. Yep, I know. I know. Reptiles are in trouble. Amphibians are in trouble. Birds are in trouble. I mean, we're, and that's part of the, their story. And the marine iguana story is some of the pressures that they're facing. I just want to say, describing these things, I totally disagree that they're nasty looking. I think they're impressive looking. I think they're beautiful. I, I think they're amazing. Yeah, I, I think they got a hard knock back yeah. when Darwin was probably tired coming off of a boat for who knows how many days. Or years. And years. Yeah, or years. And uh, so, yeah, I think it was a little a little hard on these guys because and I must admit, I'm obviously biased because, I, like I said, I've worked with some darling mm-hmm. iguanas before. But, yeah, I love their look. I think mm-hmm. that they have a lot of character. Mm-hmm. Um, iguanas in general, they, they, they look like little Godzillas. I know. I well, we said that with Komodo Dragon, but no, this no, is more. No, we like, were wrong. They, we were yeah, wrong. This is Hands this down, is marine yeah. iguana wins. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just – it's just charming. And so we'll put pictures up on our show notes and, mm-hmm. and we'll try to briefly explain how it differs in the typical iguana that everybody can probably picture just from knowing what iguanas are. But marine iguanas are either gray and black in color for the most part. There are some outstanding subspecies that are brilliant in colors and we'll touch on that here shortly. But they have pyramid-shaped dorsal along their back scales or spines, depending on how you want to call them. And their head is kind of conical and pointed, but what really separates them, I think, in my opinion, from other species of iguanas is they have this like short, blunt snout, mm-hmm. almost, almost dog-like. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like a pug almost, right? So, like, yeah, the something. pug of the iguana world. Yeah. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. And yeah. uh, and then their tails uh, slight, somewhat laterally compressed. And they have a pretty thick body with relatively short but very strong limbs, which we'll talk a lot about uh, when we get to their uh, behavior and physiology. So it's, yeah, like I said, they're, they're darker in color in general with this black, grayish color. But once again, a, some subspecies – are the most colorful, and one is even called the Christmas iguana from yeah, the yeah. Española island. So, yeah, I think in general, though, I, I, I have a feeling that um, Darwin didn't find first find the Española island marine iguana, the Christmas iguana, uh, right off the bat. Because no, otherwise, he'd no. been like, he'd <laughs> <laughs> been, he'd been like, wow. Um, so yeah, I don't. I mean, they're definitely, they do have a lizard-like effect, but I don't think that they're definitely not hideous or disgusting. No, That's for they're, sure. They're, they're, I would have been like, oh my God, discovering them or, you know, trying to write their their description for him would have been, wow, you know, this is such a unique looking creature. Right. And he, and he probably didn't really know, but they basically have, dis- they discovered the only marine lizard in the entire right. world. In the entire yeah, world. Yeah. This is the only lizard that goes in the ocean, right? I mean, it, that's incredible. Now, amongst the, the subspecies, and we'll talk about them here in a second, definitely have size differences. 
So the average size I was seeing was around three feet or a meter long. You know, Mm -hmm. that was about the average, but can be as long as five feet or one and a half meters. Mm -hmm. And you worked with the green iguana, right? So they're the largest. They get up to five and a half feet almost from from nose to tail. Piccadilly was a big girl. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they get big. Those things get big. Uh, Average weight, five pounds, two kilograms, or I saw they could be as heavy as 26 pounds or 12 kilograms. Yeah, Chris, that's going to be uh, an example of, an, of a marine guana on the southern Isabella Island. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And, and talking about where they range, so they're only in the Galapagos Islands. That's it. Period. End of story. They don't, they don't range outside of that. And you were just saying the Isabella Island, that's the largest of the islands mm-hmm. that are around there. Then you have Fernandina, which is off Isabella Island. Santa Cruz, San Cristobal, Española, Florina... Those are the bigger ones. And then you have a bunch of these littler ones, the smaller s- islands around there. And sorry for all of our Latin, Latin listeners. Yeah. We have horrible <laughs> American accents. Yes, I apologize. Yes, yes. And Angie speaks Spanish way better than I do. Uh, but, yeah, but my accent is still bad. <laughs> right, right. But then, I mean, you know, you're talking so many islands. And, yes. You know, all these different species are, are on each of these little islands or the bigger Sub, ones, the bigger islands, subspecies, subspecies, mm-hmm. right. So the subspecies, not the, the, there's only one species of marine iguana, but all the different subspecies here around there. Now, what I've really loved looking into this was I was trying to think of Galapagos Islands and I always imagine because they're volcanic that it was just volcanic islands with some shrub brush, but that's not quite true. So I'll get there in a second. I do want to say... Going to the Galapagos, the volcanoes are still active. So there was just one for the, you know, and this has been going on for 20 million years. The, the, yeah, the but the that did, that's Islands. actually, that didn't stop us from the big island of Hawaii. In fact, we actually had, John and I, that for our, our <laughs> one year anniversary had fun there visiting my good friend Nani. Boy, this episode right. should be dedicated to Nani as yeah. well. Uh, yeah, yeah. She lives there and we got, we, we got to poke our stick in lava and make earth. So, and that was like one of John's <laughs> highlights in his whole life. I mean, he just loved it. Well, well so. you could probably go do it in the Galapagos. Since 1961, there's still nine active volcanoes on these islands. There's been 24 eruptions. Just last year in Isabella, the largest, the Sierra Negra volcano erupted in 2018. So they are still very active. So going back to thinking of a volcanic island, I guess if you do think about Hawaii, it's not true. You know, Hawaii is so lush and green. But there's really two biomes in the Galapagos Islands. So you do have this volcanic, rocky, rough, harsh terrain with cactus and shrubs and just kind of, uh, you know, you see in the nature documentaries, you you kind of see the the volcanic rocks. There's some amazing documentaries done down there. But the highlands of the Galapagos are like a tropical forest. So you have this lush foliage and green and beautiful. So you have these two competing, you know, biomes going on there. So that's why this is just one of the places on earth I've got to get to. I've got to get to. And, you know, generally the the marine iguanas are going to be on the coastlines. So they're in this lowland volcanic area because they don't need to go up into the trees. That's not where they live. That's not where they've evolved to be. That's not where they eat. No, no. They have evolved to be in the ocean, right on the shoreline. Mm -hmm. And and I'm not lying to you today, you know, Angie, when I was reviewing my slides and my research and I was like, man, what a life. 
just, I mean, I, I love the ocean and, and I, I was just near the ocean yesterday and I was like, God, you just sit there. You're a little bit hungry. You're like, okay, I'm going to go eat for a little bit. Just jump in, go for a nice swim, dive, get some Oh good my gosh, salad. Chris, you found your soul creature. <laughs> they come back and just lay out all day on the beach. Yeah, like, yeah oh. I think you found it. I think you found it. I did. That's, that's pretty amazing. It's a marine iguana. And not many predators. We'll talk more about that when no, we get to their population. No, no, Unfortunately, that's no. changing a little bit thanks to humans. Yeah, I know. But yeah, in general, it is kind of a chillaxing lifestyle if you think about it. Oh, I just thought of it today and I was like, because it's so hot today in Southern California and I was just like, oh, it'd be so nice to jump in the ocean and just go get some food and <laughs> lay on the rocks. So that's why I care about these things. Like it's just, they're they're not only one of the, probably one the the most unique iguana, I would think on earth, one of the most unique reptiles on earth and, you know, what we're finding, especially in this extinction crisis right now, is amphibians and reptiles are really good indicator species of what's going on out there. They, you know, we just, I know in our news that we just pushed out on Patreon, you and I were talking about birds and how bird, the canary in the coal mine and birds are a good indicator. Well, so are reptiles and amphibians. When we see a lot of these changes with climate change and that's going on, and seeing the, the massive decrease in these species, again, the heartbeat of Earth, we can see what's happening. So for me, not only do I want to be a marine iguana one day and just kind of lay on the <laughs> beach and swim, is just, you know, they're, they're a good indicator species. I, I think of the health of the Galapagos, maybe the health of the marine environment around there, you know. And then at some point, I know we're going to talk about El Nino, you know, and the dangers there. So. I just think it's it's obviously a critical species for that part of the world, but, you know, one worth fighting for. I mean, they all are worth fighting for, but this is definitely one that's very oh, amazing. Yeah. Well, they're just incredible and they're beautiful. And we'll put pictures up on our show notes. Uh, and I think we failed to mention, but there's about seven to eight subspecies of marine iguanas throughout the different islands of Galapagos. And they're each really unique and they're really, really beautiful and definitely check them out uh, as far as their colors and their color patterns. And of course there is kind of some just black and gray ones, but I still think they're beautiful. So yeah, Chris, and it's also of concern that the IUCN labels marine iguanas as vulnerable without mm -hmm. any population counts, let alone of these subspecies. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, the IUCN mm -hmm. data is older it's from 2004 and they they need to update it and i know they're probably working on that but it it's a little alarming for if we're talking about seven to eight or maybe nine however many subspecies there are today because as you mentioned with genetics that's always changing mm -hmm. that i mean how, what is the individual subspecies what does it look at what does it look like at the subspecies level like how many christmas right. iguanas are there how many isabella island marine iguanas are there and so mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just uh, it's a species that we need to pay attention to for several reasons. A, it's your spirit or soul animal. <laughs> and uh, it also needs to be recognized that once again, this is the only living lizard that swims in the ocean and it fills a, a niche or a job or a role in the ecosystem that's honestly not even really well defined because mm -hmm. not many... Lizards do this, 
But what researchers do know is that there's definitely some species interactions happening. And of course, as scientists, we always love to put everything in a box and to categorize the type of interactions. So, and the two types of interactions are mutualistic and commensal. And so just briefly, a mutualistic interaction between species is one where both species are going to positively benefit from their interaction. And then the other type is commensal, where one of the species benefit and the other one is just neutral. It doesn't hurt it. It's just like hanging out neutral. And so some of these interactions that are, once again, only found with marine iguanas and one such commensal relationship is where lava lizards basically just scurry all over marine iguanas when they're basking out on the mm. rocks and hunt flies off their backs. Just okay. know, hunt flies. <laughs> so, hey, I, I like it. You bring them right. over here. I have mosquitoes, you know. Hey, yeah. I, you know come, so, come take care of me. Once again, yeah. that's helping the lava lizard because they're getting food and it's just, it's neutral. It's not really doing anything for the marine iguana, but very helpful to the lava lizard. Another one is that Darwin's mm. finches, mockingbirds, and Sally Lightfoot crabs sometimes feed on mites and ticks that they pick off the iguana skin. The marine iguanas don't care, and that's an example of mutualistic relationship because, well, the birds and crabs are getting food, and the iguanas are getting pest removal, okay? And when they're swimming underwater... Marine iguanas are often cleaned by fish like the Pacific Sergeant Majors that will pick off its molting or sh- anybody who's worked with <laughs> reptiles before knows they right. uh, the molt their skin. And so once again, that's mutual helping both the fish get a little yummy food and get that old nasty skin off of, you know, it's like a pedicure on steroids, I guess, over your mm-hmm, whole body or mm-hmm, something, mm-hmm. getting rid of that dead skin. And I just have to point out, researchers say that they don't think there's any benefit but marine iguanas often live in harmony next to uh, the much larger Galapagos sea lions. And they basically just ignore each other. An iguana might crawl over the body of a sea lion. They're just, they're both just laying around. <laughs> they both have good lives. I'd be a sea lion as well. <laughs> I don't know. Sea lion, you know, you're out there in the ocean and, uh, you know, you, oh, you yeah, got orcas. some things that want to yeah. eat you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A little iguana, so- like, yeah. You know, <laughs> but, I'm too sca- but I'm, I'd be too scaly. I know. But really, though, I mean, on a serious note, though, these these mutualistic relationships mm-hmm. are really important. And if there aren't any marine guanas, what's going to happen to all the other species that I mentioned? And so that's just a little bit that they've studied. And and once again, what what's going on down under the water? I'm sure there's a whole host of other species interactions and ecosystem roles that haven't even been right. recorded yet. Because uh, once again, this is the only species of li- lizard that lives in this ecological niche that yeah. is, is yeah. semi-aquatic, right? So that means, and we'll talk about it when mm-hmm. we get to behavior and their physiological adaptations, but they're out on the rocks part of the time hanging out, and then they're in the water swimming and eating the rest of the time. And so just just really, really interesting niche that they fill. While you're talking, I'm like... Remember we started this two years ago? And we no, were like, Chris, oh, it's all blur. No. <laughs> Wait, know. I'm not dreaming? This isn't just no, one big, like, long animal dream? Uh, you, I remember in the beginning, we're like, okay, we're going to talk physiology and behavior we like. And, you know, we're going to keep it at an hour and we're going to 
these were our goals, right? At each each program. If you go back and listen <laughs> yeah. to our our early goals. rough episodes, don't you do know? It. It, <laughs> but my God, Angie, where we've gone now? We're now I, I can see it. Like we we see, I see the web. We started talking about the the food tree or whatever it was. I know. And, you know my student, uh, my students in my, uh, I have an ecosystem and animal behavior class that I'm teaching right now. And they have their exam this week on uh, mm-hmm. communities, ecosystems, biomes. Mm-hmm. And you better believe it that mm-hmm. there's a couple questions on there about the difference between food chains and food webs and things like that and yeah. why they're important yeah. and how everything's super related. And, and spoiler alert, it's all connected. So you take yeah. one animal out and there's going to be yeah. a big effect on a lot of different species from the plant species, the autotrophs, mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. the way up to your apex predator. Yeah. I, I, it's, oh, it's amazing. It's the clarity that I'm seeing, that you're seeing. Hopefully our listeners that, that have listened to this podcast can see and probably know, you know, people that study this. But, but now I look at it and hearing you talk about it again. I'm just like, you're right. I mean, each species has, has carved out a niche that's taken tens of thousands of years. Millions, you know, even. And, who knows? Think, yeah. Millions for some, and it's still evolving. But, you know, with the, the rapid change, animals do not have time to adapt. But, yeah, it's, it's again, another species that it just plays a critical role. And, and they all depend on each other. And, you know, when you start taking what you take out one, they adjust. You take out two, they adjust more. You take out three, like where's that that cliff that once you take out too many, they all fall, fail. Well, and I think it depends you know? on what species you take out. I mean, if you take out an apex yeah. predator, there's a huge oh, yeah. dynamic shift. Environmental impact. Uh, yeah. and, yep. But then again, yep. too, if you take out the primary autotropes or plant species, I mean, mm-hmm. that's going to have a huge effect too on all the different herbivores. And so, yeah, it's not really a game we want to play. And we, no, obviously no. there's amazing. I, I, I want to get off this bus. I want to get off this bus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I know the bus that's going down the hill yeah. and it's picking up steam towards yeah extinction for everything. I want to get out and stop the bus, but uh, that's what we're doing. We're going to stop the bus and we're going to do it together. With our, our, Absolutely. Help from our listeners. Yeah. Conservation optimism. Yeah. And there's so many. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there's so many great people out there fighting. I mean, this weekend was the, the big climate change and to see the young generation stand up and say enough's enough. Absolutely. You know, and, and I know, you know, there's some people our age, some older folks, but to see the, the younger generation. Take middle, a middle, and, middle, middle folks. Yeah. Mid-age, mid-age. Ooh, even yeah. that. <laughs> oh, man. But yes, kudos, I know, I kudos know. to the climate strikes. Uh, we'll be out yeah. there joining you whenever we can. That's for sure. Yeah. Yep. In our wheelchairs. All right. <laughs> and <So>. our canes. <laughs> yes. You kids. You kids today. I love you. You're doing a good job. Absolutely. (laughs) Come sit on my lawn and let's talk. All right. So iguanas, the family iguanas, like I said, the total family tree is being currently being restructured by scientists. Well, we do know the marine iguanas. (laughs) That's a disclaimer. Far from it. Yes. The, yeah, the marine iguanas, it's just a single species. So Ambly Oh my goodness. I didn't even practice this. Why did I not practice this word? Because <laughs> oh you're a busy guy. Okay. I know. Ambly Rhinichus. Ambly Rhinichus. Let me see. Christosis. Let me see. I, <laughs> she's going to come in and wipe me on the floor with this. Oh my goodness. Am- Ambly Rhinichus. 
Anthony Reinkus. Christatus. 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 I agree with you Andy on that one. Andy Ryan Is found. Good job. The, the Ryan must be in there because of the nose, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. The, the, for Rhino or the, the yeah, the, the blunted nose. nose. I don't know. Um, the blunted nose, yeah. It's found only in the Galapagos Archipelago. So we know that. It's a monotypic genus. So it, it, the debate, seven, eight, up to 10 or 11 subspecies of marine iguanas. Again, uh, being debated now and, and being more uh, classified, uh, fine-tuned by scientists that are studying this. Now, what's interesting about the marine iguana, you know, again... how they get there, Chris? Yeah. So we talked about it with the tamarins, right? It was the tamarins that came over from Africa on these rafts of vegetation. Allegedly, just, but yes. <laughs> allegedly, yes. Floated from Africa to South America. Long before Darwin, and, right? Right. So they think the same thing similar here with the Galapagos iguanas, that a common ancestor floated out to South America on these rafts of vegetation uh, to the islands. And this happened about 10 and a half million years ago. And then it was, which was really cool, is then the marine iguanas diverged and really carved out their niche to to go in the ocean and to forage uh, down there eating what we're going to talk about nutrition and that happened about four and a half five million years ago so they've been around quite a while quite a while and you know just discovered by humans just a few hundred years ago now reptile evolution if you really want the long end of it go listen to komodo dragons if you haven't amazing episode amazing That was fun. That was fun. You know, and I asked, are they related to dinosaurs? That was the big question. No, dinosaurs are actually related to reptiles because reptiles evolved first, 320 million years ago. And there's quite a big difference uh, between reptiles and dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are warm-blooded. They think, you know, reptiles are cold-blooded. We'll get to that here again to remind you. They came out of the swamps 310 million years ago. And then 260 million years ago is when they split. So the archosaurs became the crocodiles and dinosaurs, where the lepidosaurs became today's lizard snakes, tuataras. So that's where they came out of. So dinosaurs are definitely different. Even though they're classified as reptilian, they're not. Mm -hmm. That was just the classification system. So that's the quick and dirty, dirty of it because I, d- I really didn't, you know, I wanted to spend more time talking about Galapagos than, than lizard evolution, which we'll revisit again, you know, fine tune it for some other species. So looking at it, obviously you've worked with the largest iguana. So I was thinking, what's the most dangerous lizard for humans? Can you think of one? You might've mentioned it two minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> the Komodo dragon. Yes. Okay. So we know the Komodo dragon is probably the most dangerous lizard for humans. You know, it it, it can be uh, quite a hassle and, and, and has damaged or, or killed people. I'll leave it at that. They're beautiful animals. Don't mess but with But not very many people, if I remember correctly. No, it's, no. It's very rare. It's very rare. Now, so I, lo- I it's asked. It's probably okay. the people that are like trying to take selfies of them and trip over and fall off cliffs. That's probably what's oh, happening. Yeah. I know. I know. I just uh, look at them from a distance. All right, so I asked, okay, what's the most dangerous reptile in the world? 
I know one, this. I'm going to ask. You. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of want to say Black Mamba, but then mm-hmm. I know that's in Africa, and I feel like the most dangerous reptile mm-hmm. has to be in Australia. <laughs> Is where? <laughs> of course, and it has so to be. <laughs> it has to be in Australia. Yes. Uh, and I do feel like it is a snake. Yes, yes. You're pretty close. I'll, I'll help you out. Inland Taipan. Okay. Yeah. Is, yeah. And of course, it's Australia. <laughs> it's, it's, it's venom is enough to kill 100 humans. And I, Angie, I was like, it hit me today again. Why is Australia have so many dang, harsh, rough, Animals yeah, like, what is going on? We recently rented a book from our library, and the boys, pick, of course, they pick their own books out, and we got mm-hmm. Australian animals, and I think it's deadly Australian animals or something like that, and like everything right. from a spider to the octopi yes. to, of course, lizards. <laughs> it's nuts, and, I, and but it got me all excited again to cover more Australian species. So. Hopefully our listeners can help yeah. us chime in and they can vote for some of their favorite Australian species because it's time we it's time we get back yeah. there again soon. Uh, we love our Aussies. We've got a, a, a few thousand fans down there. Thank you. We love you. We love your country. We love your continent. Angie and I are definitely coming there soon. Um, I definitely got to get out to the outback and, and Lee's going to take me and show me around. So, But I really want to look at this in a future episode. I really, I want to go and evaluate and try to find the evolutionary processes that drove these animals to come up with such intense, insane defenses. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Cause you know, it's oh, awesome. Awesome place. Awesome. Awesome continent. So moving on back to the Galapagos, let's go back across the Pacific and my spirit animal, Angie, is, you know, maybe I should be a Galapagos tortoise because they live a long, 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 they long time. They certainly do. They <laughs> certainly do. Yes. And, and I have a feeling we're going to cover them within the year because they are amazing. And giant. So what, over 100, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Easily, easily over 100 years old. My little spirit animal only lives about 5 to 12 years. So yes. <laughs> it's not very long. Yeah. Yeah, Chris, and that's five to twelve years or so. That's that's not long enough. Not yeah, long. <laughs> I mean, it's long enough, I guess, if you're just swimming and sunbathing. You have a pretty, you've, you've had a pretty relaxing life. So, yeah, yeah I guess. Yeah, you know what? And you just fall asleep and never wake up and just come back as yeah, another, you know, exactly. <laughs> come back as another marine iguana. Now, this is what what's fun about these animals. Very specially adapted to live on these shorelines and eat in the ocean, right? So their physiology has evolved to to perfect this. So like you said earlier, their tail is kind of flattened, Mm -hmm. right? A little bit. And that's perfect for swimming. And it helps propel them through the water while their legs and limbs, just like you said, the short yeah. stubby legs just kind of sit Yeah, kind of almost like a long. crocodile uh, uh, that would move through the mm-hmm. water with their tail. Uh, watching watching right. swim, videos of them swimming kind of reminded me of that, but very graceful. And the tail helps them yeah. a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then they have these really sharp claws that help them, you know, climb out all over the volcanic mm-hmm. rock. Yes. So then they can sunbathe. And this is what's fun. It reminded me of sea turtles because I remember we talked about this special adaption. And that is 
okay, these are animals that that need water. They they don't live in salt water. They're not a fish or say a whale right, or they, a porpoise they, or a dolphin well, or something like that. Similar to mammals, they they breathe air. Right. They don't have so, gills. Like but fish. when they, no, so but when they go down and they eat, they consume a lot of salt water. Yes. Right. And they have to have a mechanism of getting rid of the salt. And I think this is what would be fun to study them. So so they don't dehydrate. They get rid of this excess salt through some special glands in their nose. And to get rid of it, it gets rid of the salt as they go and they sneeze <laughs> out this extra salt, which covers their face. So they have salt-crusted Exactly. Heads. Yeah, they have and a lot of times they have these like yeah. white, they look like they have a white wig on their head almost. Which is mm-hmm. for a lot of the darker mm-hmm. marine iguanas, it's very, it's a big contrast, be, be, you know, next to their gray or black bodies. And then just this white wig on top, which is just the expelled salt. It gets all crusty. <laughs> it's like, hey, you know, hey, what a life. What a life. So their physiology, I mean, they're, they, they've adapted, they, they're still adapting, you know, that scientists are still finding new things out about them, how they do this, how they survive. Now, you did mention earlier, not many predators, you're right. I mean, usually when they're young, that's when they they can get picked off, you know, by hawks or herons or some other birds. But generally, once they're mature adults, they're they're pretty much okay. I I couldn't find any, like, instances of sharks eating them. Maybe a shark might try. I don't don't even know if that's in a diet of a shark that would, like, want to eat an iguana that's in the ocean. So not a ton of predators, but thanks to us... Cats, feral cats, feral dogs, feral rats are a problem. Uh, not only eating the iguanas themselves, but also mm-hmm. their eggs. So that is leading to some pressures. Not great, but you know, overall, they you know they're, they're kind of left alone. It's really man or humans that that's driving them to you know vulnerable status that we talked about. Now, again, another amazing fact about these these animals is. They live on land, but they feed in the ocean. Like I said, they like to go out and eat some salad. You know, I read somewhere they eat some crustaceans, right? They might eat something else every now and then. But- yes. On, on rare occasions, they might eat a crustacean or an insect. Their main focus is underwater algae and some seaweed uh, that grow, mm-hmm. the algae that grows on the rocks, both red and green algae. There's right. up to maybe 10 different genres of algae that they've been known to consume on a regular basis that once again grows on the rocks underneath the water and then you know you always like to talk about form and function so that short snout serves a purpose and that's basically you know that they can actually go and make contact with the algae the the rocks to eat and it's again amazing to see in your head how over you know, millions of years that they've been evolving, that they get that that short nose and then yeah, very very sharp razor t- like teeth to help scrape the algae off of rocks. Right. And of course, I found myself on YouTube watching some awesome National Geographic videos of marine iguanas <laughs> resting on land, but then also right. really cool videos of them foraging underwater. And I love animals and I love watching animals eat. Obviously, that's what horses mm-hmm. usually do. Uh, mm-hmm. So just watching mm-hmm. their strategy about how they could yeah, kind of grab onto the algae and use their sharp teeth to like pull it off and they just keep munching. And and 
They're doing this while they're underwater holding their breath, mind you. Right, right. Like, they can go as deep as 10 meters or 32 feet. That's about average, but they've recorded them going twice Mm -hmm. that, 20 meters or 65 feet. They've actually measured them... 30 minutes underwater yes. you know, before coming mm-hmm. up for breath. Yeah. It's usually, yeah. it's usually 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, but they recorded potentially up to an hour. So. Right. I mean, that's right. long. That's a lot. That's a lot of cool physiological adaptations going on to be able to do that. Right. And what, and what's cool about this. And I guess this is a good, this is a good segue into behavior is, okay, this is a, cold-blooded animal which doesn't necessarily mean their blood is is cold per se it means they need help thermoregulating they need the sun they need to warm up so diving in the cold ocean is very taxing on them and they can only go forage about once a day well i know chris and the marine iguanas are actually a lot like me when it comes to going into cold water i grew up in michigan and the colder the water is, the shorter the time the marine iguanas are going to spend in that water. Mm-hmm. The warmer mm-hmm. it is, the longer foraging trips they're going to be on and probably the deeper dives and the longer they'll be holding their breath and things like that. Uh, and so, yeah, as a kid, if that water was cold, Michigan, I would run in, do I need to do cool off, whatever it is, go to the bathroom. Just kidding. Kind of not just kidding. Uh, and then run back out. And so, but they need to do that because as you mentioned, since they are cold blooded, which doesn't mean they have cold blood. It just means that their temperature is more dependent upon the ambient temperature that they're in. So if they're in cold water, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be hard for them to warm up. And that's why they'll do a lot of the swimming and then sunbathing to warm up. As Chris mentioned, they spend a lot of time on those rocks sunbathing to heat their body, their core body temperature back up. And that's why researchers also think that a lot of the subspecies of marine iguanas have these really dark color, gray colors. I'm sure most people are familiar with the fact that black coloring absorbs more light where white reflects it. So this darker color black that they have helps them warm up faster after the, on these cold diving days. You're right. So I read that, you know, before they go on these diving trips, they like to warm up to about 36 degrees Celsius or 96.8 roughly Fahrenheit. And then while diving, they can lose up to 10 degrees Celsius. Like they, they drop body temperature. Yeah. yeah. And that's when they're like, oh, I got to get out. So mm-hmm. being a spirit animal, I can kind of feel that, you know, when you're in the ocean, but <laughs> yeah. you can't get used to it, you know, but anyways, not this so they drop girl. body temperature. Uh-uh. I am no, get out. And, not, especially now being in Florida, up. I'm a wimp. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I know. I've always been a wimp growing up in California. So yeah, behavior. I mean, just fascinating fascinating they, they always make like the planet earths or the bbc nature documentaries because they're so unique and so fun to watch what are some of the other cool stuff that they do well we kind of already mentioned it but yeah darwin said they were clumsy and yes on land where they just kind of need to climb out onto the rocks with their big sharp nails and claws they just hang out and yeah they're not super agile but when they're in the water they are such a graceful swimmer and they're able to navigate where they need to. They're able to anchor themselves down near these rocks and 
eat the algae while they're trying to keep themselves down below the water. So they're just amazing swimmers and really beautiful when they do it. When they're hauled out onto the rocks, they mainly live in colonies, but they're not really a social creatures. And in these colonies, there can be anywhere from 20 to 500 animals and maybe even more than that. But they don't really interact the way that other species we've talked about that hang out in colonies will interact with one another, like penguins and things like this. They're pretty much just next to each other, mind their own beeswax, letting other mm-hmm, lizards mm-hmm. come and catch flies on their backs <laughs> or birds, you know, pick mites off of them. They don't really do much with each other. There's no mutual grooming or things like that uh, that's often seen in birds and other mammals. But they hang out and they're pretty peaceful. And the larger males will defend a territory, especially during the breeding season. And when that happens, then you can see some more intra-species interactions of marine iguanas. But for the most part, they're just kind of just hauled out, relaxing, minding their own business. But yet Mm -hmm. they still will colonize in these group aggregates. Maybe it's based on food. Maybe it's based on that's their part of the beach. They're left alone. I'm not really sure the evolutionary reasons of why they hang out in colonies without really buddying up with anybody, if you will. Uh, But some of the cool, fun behaviors iguanas do are going to often occur with these male-to-male interactions. And what will happen is if one male encroaches on another male's territory or a female that he might be pursuing. He's going to bob his head up and down, which iguanas are infamous for this head bob. If you have never seen it, you should watch a YouTube video. It's pretty charming and they're pretty committed. It's not, it's not like a nod. It's like a straight up bob. Uh, And, but a male will do that. And then he'll walk on stiff legs. He'll even raise the spiny crest along his back and often open mouth trying to look tough to the other male. Most cases, especially if it's a larger male, the submissive male will just turn around and retreat and be like, okay, you win. And they're pretty non-aggressive. And on an off occasion that a fight does ensue, I would think that they would use those gnarly, sharp, razor sharp teeth to go at each other. But marine iguanas don't do that. They actually thrust their heads together In more of a football move, they try to push each other away, and there's usually no teeth involved. And this pushing their hard bony plates together can go on anywhere from a few minutes to might even last to an hour. And sometimes they actually take little little breaks from their spat, from their head butting or head pushing, if you will. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, dude, I'm tired. Me too, dude. Okay, time out. And then they go back and do it a little bit longer. But in the end, a winner will be established, I guess the best headbutter, and the loser will just be submissive and walk away. So the fights in marine iguanas over territory or breeding rights are basically considered more ritualized than they are aggressive and tough. Mm -hmm. So really fun behaviors that I just need to be out on the Galapagos, sitting on a rock there far away from them, but with my binoculars just watching that because it just sounds, I just, it sounds really interesting to watch them kind of just push each other around with their heads, but not be super aggressive. Uh, And -hmm, then mm -hmm. the other thing I'd really love to see in, um, in the wild, the Galapagos 
is that researchers have basically coined three types of males when it comes to breeding. And you know me, I love behavior and I love reproduction and courtship behavior. And so Mm -hmm. reading over the three types of male iguanas that are of breeding age, they have the sneakers, the satellites, and the territorial males. (laughs) And so the sneakers are what they sound like. They're just sneaky. And once in a while, they're able to sneak on in and breed a female that wasn't in their territory. And those are usually the youngest ones. The satellites are not the most dominant or the largest one, but they're close enough in line where something should happen to the larger or more aggressive, tough male, they, they move up the line. Then they'll score the lady friend iguana. And of course, the last one is a territorial male, which that's the big dog on campus, the one that can score the ladies because he's the biggest and most aggressive or wins the most headbutt, headbutt challenges. But it really got mm-hmm. me thinking because I always correlate animal behavior to my life. I don't know why. But I'm like, so you've got the three types of male iguanas, adult male breeding iguanas. We've got the sneakers, Mm -hmm. the satellites, and the territorials. And I'm like, oh, my God, those sound like all the different types of guys I dated before I landed John. (laughs) He's definitely territorial. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, so pretty funny stuff, definitely. And, And once again, too, as researchers study more about their behavior they just keep being amazed by how intricate the behaviors are in these lizards Mm -hmm. than i guess what you would have thought when darwin first landed and just called them you know and whatever yeah clumsy beasts or whatever they were that they have these really these really detailed interactions that are really ritualized and really meaningful and just fun to watch i guess if you if you ask me i know and and of course researchers are Behavior is amazing. It's such an amazing field of study. Yeah, and what's really crazy about these different phenotypes of males, the sneaker, the satellite, and the territorial, is they actually can sometimes switch. And that's what has researchers puzzled as to like, how can you go from being like a territorial to a satellite? Mm -hmm. Or how do you get from being a sneaker to a territorial? And so trying to figure out, because they'll kind of go back and forth. Uh, They're not just always one kind. From breeding season to breeding season, they can change their phenotype as far as their territorial mm-hmm. behavior goes, uh, which is just really interesting. So to all those sneaky boys I dated out there years ago, <laughs> you can change if you want to. You can change your phenotype I, if you want to. spirit animal, my spirit animal, I mean, you know, yeah, in my human life, maybe I would say I'm territorial, but man, I just, my spirit animal, I'd be on the on those rocks going, oh, I'm going to go sneak sneak around a little bit then go back just laying out like i'm not gonna fight for a territory yeah. you know <laughs> i don't got time for that i need some sunshine yeah. and i'd love that i love that they <laughs> they don't even use their sharp teeth they're like no we don't you know we don't want to actually get hurt we just need to like go through the motions okay you're the toughest you win but yeah and, and once again that's, that's awesome they're not going to really do that except for during the three-month breeding season and so in the galapagos the breeding season is going to be from december to march and then the females will nest in January to April. And once again, these exact times depend on the subspecies and which island they're on. And it's also going to depend on how well the nutrition was that season as far as the LG and what happened, whether it was an El Nino year or not, and 
We're going to talk more about that when we get mm-hmm. to threats of how El Nino can influence marine, igu- uh, marine iguanas, and it's something we need to consider. So it's not mm-hmm. exactly perfect for each species, but and in regards to the courtship, I found this somewhat appropriate. Uh, males are selected by females on their body size, with females in general preferring bigger males. And that makes sense because what ends up happening is if a female selects a bigger male, it's a sign of more reproductive fitness and therefore Mm -hmm. potentially going to have a higher survival rate of their hatchlings and they're going to be larger and things like then healthier and things like that. But this is where I can relate. Females also look at the head bobbing frequency. So it's not just the type of head bobbing. It's the amount of head bobbing Mm -hmm. you do in order to entertain the female. So that's kind of funny. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Especially in a bar, head bobbing the whole time. And so, so, and then she looks, besides his size and his Mm -hmm. head bobbing, she also looks at the quality of his territory. Like, ooh, George, your rock is so much better than Hank's rock. I mean... (laughs) That's right. I got all this algae. What are you talking about? Look at at my rock. I got all this algae underneath me. So, and researchers also think that males might secrete different pheromones that can attract females. So, of course, that makes sense. There's a lot of, from a molecular chemical basis, there's a lot going on with animals and probably our own selves that we don't even know about, right? And so, after this frequent head bobbing and all that, um, basically, the male will nod at the female. And so basically the courtship will display with the male nodding and bobbing at the female and she either likes what she sees or she doesn't. And if she does like what she sees, she'll her gestation period is about one month. And then she lays one to six, usually two to three, eggs in burrows, so on land, that are about 30 to 80 centimeters deep. And of the iguana, it reminded me of another species we covered that's a bird because the Mm. marine iguana has very large eggs for an iguana. In fact, her clutch, when it's inside her before she lays it, can take up to 25% of her body weight. Wow. Wow. Do you remember the species of bird that has obnoxiously large eggs? Well, for its yeah, body size. I mean, I want to say my favorite. I want to say my favorite dad, but that's not true. It is the one that is down in New Zealand that doesn't fly. The that's right. Kiwi. And for the kiwi, it's an even bigger proportion. I think I. Oh, it's huge! Yeah, it's like the whole yeah. body is an egg. <laughs> it's like everything. It's, that like, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But now these eggs, once they're laid, they're laid in the sand or the volcanic ash, and they they take them a little in offshore about. 300 meters or so. And so the marine iguana for a lizard is actually pretty good on the mama scale. Uh, The female will guard the burrow for several days after she's laid the eggs. She does take off eventually and let the eggs incubate for up to 95 days. But she's there in the beginning and she's strong in the beginning. And what she does is actually quite interesting When other females are walking by, she will give very nasty gram threat displays Mm -hmm. in order to basically scare off the other female 
And if that doesn't work from coming near her, or maybe trying to steal her nesting site or something, if she's got this wonderful volcanic ash or sand or something, the females will actually sometimes fight. She'll fight to protect her, her incubation spot and her nest. And these are actually much less ritualized than males and they can get nasty and they can actually use their teeth. So mama Marina Mm. Guana will stand up for herself. And for not only obviously mm-hmm. herself, but for her little iguanas. I don't know her soon to be hatchlings. But she does end up leaving them to hatch on their own. And when marine iguana babies do hatch, they're pretty tiny. They're three and a half to five inches. And that's including the tail. And they only weigh a couple of ounces. So as soon as they emerge from that nest, they got to run for cover. And they usually try to find locations that are good temperatures and that provide shelter. And what they'll do to survive in the beginning, because they don't have, they haven't honed the diving skills yet, is they'll actually feed on feces from other marine iguanas. It also helps get okay. their gut microbiome going. Microbes, mm-hmm. yeah. So it's thinking microbes. And it, just to jump in there real quick, this is typical of a lot of young animals. You know, we see it. We see it in hoofstock. You know, they they need to get those gut microbes, especially in the marine iguana, because should have mentioned nutrition. Don't they? They they have special microbes that break down this. Oh algae, yes, definitely relationship, right? a symbiotic so, relationship with those microbes in their gut. And there's, there's a whole science devoted to studying microbes in the gut. We've seen it in humans in the last few years, you know, talking about the gut microbiome. And so I know in iguanas and in other species, they need those microbes and they get them from mama, you know, and, and I think even we get them from mama, like from nursing and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's, it's when we, we hear of babies eating poop from mama in the wild, I mean, there's a purpose behind it. It's, it. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds disgusting, but it, it actually serves a very critical purpose for them to, to get those microbes. And I think, Oh God, it'd be fascinating to study the genetics of those microbes, like generation after generation after oh, generation. Yeah. Very specialized. And like I said, they, I, I think it probably depends on which subspecies they are too. And if they're meat, eating more red algae or green algae. A few subspecies I read can eat brown algae. So, which is, I think a little toxic, uh, but they've figured out a way to, Mm -hmm. to work with it. And so this really highly specialized and very unique and gut microbes, microbes in general are friend. I always blow my classes minds, or I think I do. I probably don't. They're probably like yawning, but I, when I, when I, (laughs) I tell them about the fact that you have more foreign DNA, in and on your body, like by weight, than you do of your own DNA. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just crazy, right? Yeah. So yeah, it is. really it is. important it is. stuff, um, the microbiome. And I forgot why we we're talking about that because we we're talking about, oh, because we we're talking about babies. Yes. And so <laughs> that's microbes. important. Yeah, gut microbes. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it is. But I think it's also interesting about the offspring or the hatchlings, if you will, of marine iguanas is they don't just dive in the water right away and swim off. And so some researchers suggest that they probably don't start actually swimming until they're one to two years old. And even then it's in the shallow water tide pools, but no, mm-hmm. no, none of this deep diving that's seen with, of course, more of the adults. And the other thing too, that, mm-hmm. 
you might find fascinating is that it takes a while for these guys to grow up. And females, they don't reach sexual maturity until they're three to five years old. And and males, it's six to eight years. They don't live long, man. I better make it to 12. Yeah. So it takes them a while to, I mean, when they're they're hatchlings, they have to hide from predators and not get picked off and learn how to eat poop, Mm -hmm. learn how to swim, and then Mm -hmm. learn how to feed on the specialized algae that's Mm -hmm. their diet. And then finally, they're old enough to pass on their genes. But it's their light, their generation interval is not as quick as you would think that it is with other lizards. It, let alone all these lizards mm-hmm. that lay lots of clutches, like lots of clutches of eggs and things mm-hmm. like that. I mean, we're only talking, you know, one breeding season each year where they're laying maybe six, but typically two to three eggs mm-hmm. each. And mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. they have to go through all these things before they can grow up and be a sexually. Uh, mature adult. So that's why we need to pay attention. Well, Chris and I think I've highlighted yeah. several well, reasons yeah. why we have to pay attention to them. But yeah. yeah, their their generation interval is slower than I think a lot of other lizards. Which, you know, made me think again. Or longer, go, I guess. Yeah, longer, going right? back to evolution, Darwin should have paid more attention because, you know, if they did have a quick breeding interval it, it, or generation interval, think about it. Like they'd run out of resources probably. There'd be too many of them. So this niche or this, it's just amazing nature, how nature works and finds balance because you don't, but you know, now that we we're in the picture and us humans could figure out that balance, right? I know, I know, but it's like, you know, now that we're in the picture, it hurts them, but left alone for thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years, they have developed that way and they've been fine. And they've survived. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. It's cool stuff. Cool stuff. Now, leading into that, that that leads us straight into conservation. And like you mentioned in the beginning, they're vulnerable by the IUCN. And it's, you know, not only do they have introduced species, you know, now we have ocean pollution, which is a big problem. But one of the things that I know you mentioned and we did earlier was the El Nino. And just quickly, what an El Nino is is the El Nino Southern Oscillation Event, and it's just this mass of low salinity, nutrient-poor surface water, okay, moving south in the eastern tropical Pacific. So this, this huge mass moves, and when it hits, especially the Galapagos, it hits hard. It hits these lizards extremely hard where it can deplete the population up to 85%. 85% oh, wiped yeah. out by an El Nino. Like, whoa, whoa. They well, have I, really I high learned, mortality rates. Yeah, and I just learned too, uh, when I had to teach this for my class, that, of course, that's how I learned. Uh, mm-hmm. It was actually first described by Peruvian fishermen because mm-hmm. they would go through these bouts of just horrific lack of fish. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know why, but now they know it's because of the, you know, the cycling of El Nino and that that warm water that's brought in isn't, isn't full of nutrients, and therefore everything from the bottom up, so from the plants, from the phytoplankton, don't have enough nutrients. The plants don't have enough nutrients. The small fish that feed on those guys, there's not enough of them. The bigger fish don't have enough mm-hmm. food 
a smaller fish and the fishermen that are trying to catch the bigger fish aren't catching them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating to them. So you throw that in there on top of these other pressures and you have here you have a species that's now vulnerable to extinction or heading towards extinction. You know, once you make that list, it, it's, it's not easy to get off. The animals are getting off and animals are being reclassified. But once you're on that list, it, it's tough. It's tough uh, to come back off it. So definitely a species that, you know, it, especially for Galapagos Islands, you know, a good bioindicator species down there, like we mentioned. Now, what you can do, I, I, I was kind of thinking, Angie, you know, before we jump into organization, what our listeners can do, and I know we've mentioned this before, but I want to, I definitely want to revisit this, and that is a reusable water bottle. And I know you have yours. Oh yes, for sure. And don't leave I have home mine. It. No, no, and just some reasons why. And I'm gonna uh, put this link on the show notes. It's hydrationanywhere.com. It's a really great little graphic on top ten reasons you need to reuse a water bottle. Number one, it's environmentally friendly. That each year, 17 million barrels of oil, 17 million it's crazy. produce 50 billion plastic water bottles. And a lot of them end up in the ocean. We know that. A lot of trash in the ocean. So, and only one of five plastic water bottles are actually properly recycled. So four or five are just disposed. So you use a reusable water bottle, you, re you reduce your plastic consumption, your oil consumption, your carbon footprint. It will save you money. It's estimated if you use a reusable water bottle, it will save on average 200 bucks a year. Everybody likes to save money. So, you know, it will save you $200 a year if you use a reusable water bottle. The water source, you know, most, you know, especially in, in United States and other westernized countries, tap water is very safe. It's very good for you. Most water bottle is just tap water. It's filtered, but it's tap water. You know, so you're paying for tap water. You're spending two, three dollars, you know, here in the United States. I don't know what that is overseas, you know, for a, for a plastic water bottle that you use once and you throw away. So that's not good. It's healthier. You know, plastic, we know plastics leach into water. So you, you want to be very careful, you know, with with that. So a lot of these BPA free water bottles are, are much safer for you. Taste tests have actually shown water from plastic water bottles tastes oh, worse sure. than tap water. It actually doesn't. Yeah. Get yourself a reusable water bottle. Just get used to filling it up, putting it in the fridge at night, carrying it with you throughout the day, refilling it. I carry mine. Angie carries hers. And you're helping the environment hugely, which will in turn help marine Yes, aquatics. absolutely. No, I mean, now that I don't go home without my water bottle, on the off occasions that I do leave it at home, I always feel... Dirty. Horrible without it. I yeah. do. I do. I'm like, where is it? And where then I just it? end up, I end up dehydrated all day because I just will drink out of water fountains because I refuse to like buy any plastic, you know, plastic container yeah. for just whatever for that day. And so, yeah, so we actually, I always have a couple. I sometimes even keep backups in my car or my backpack, things like that, because everybody has an off day for sure. Right. Um, yeah, and, it, and, you then know, way, I, and I lose things a lot. So then that way, if I do uh, lose one, well, hopefully I mean, somebody else people, picks it up and I people have are going to end up having to buy, you know, buy a plastic water bottle every now and then. But of course. If, you do your, if you do your part and take steps, you know, if we all do it, we're making a big impact. 
Well, and we're really blessed here um, where I live in Florida. A lot of the buildings have installed water fountains with bottle water bottle mm-hmm. fillers mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. for that. And then a lot of them will have the count. It'll be like, this is the 50th bottle today that's been saved from going yeah. in a landfill. And yeah. it gives you that number. It really gamifies mm-hmm. it. And it's a genius mm-hmm. idea because mm-hmm. you just mm-hmm. feel so good about yourself. Mm-hmm. You're like, yay, uh-huh. I'm drinking water, staying hydrated, makes me look great, feel great. Mm-hmm. And I just saved this bottle from a landfill. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. pretty mm-hmm. cool way to incentivize it. So with that being said, Angie, who's out there fighting for lizards and iguanas around the world? Chris, I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, (laughs) I knew you had one. I knew it. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, there are some specific groups out there that are focused on a particular species, such as the Green Iguana Conservation or Blue Iguana Conservation Project. And we'll put some links to them on our show notes. And so why I chose the IRCF is because this group works in concert with the scientific community as a whole. They're members of the IUCN, the Species Survival Commission, and iguana specialist groups. And that's part tied into the IUCN, which help make recommendations and population counts and advises all about all things iguana. So we got some a real team of iguana experts on the International Reptile Conservation Foundation. And they'll work with not only with the scientific community, but with educators and professional organizations to be a part of the solution for these iguanas that are in crisis. So they're kind of like the leader head, in my opinion. And you can check out their work. They have a beautiful website that has a ton of information and gorgeous photos about several species of iguanas out there. And just loaded with information, and you can see some of their specific work, who they partner up with, and they, they're educating people. Like, for instance, they're working with a group in Guatemala to help educate locals about very rich and multiple species of reptiles and amphibians. And they're working with uh, stopping these deforestation, because obviously reptiles and amphibians need the trees. And what I'm really excited about is that I get to speak with Chris, who's one of their founding members here in an episode interview coming up, which is all things iguana. Amazing. He is like the iguana expert. He answered all of my dying questions. Super crazy knowledgeable. Uh, so you'll have to check that out for sure. If you're a, uh, a reptile or lizard or iguana fan, uh, it does not disappoint by any stretch of the imagination. So you can check out the International Reptile Conservation Foundation at ircf.org or on Facebook as well. They have a nice presence there. So you can learn all about what they're doing and how they're help saving iguanas and several other reptile species. And right, right. They need it. They absolutely need oh, it. They absolutely they need our love. Yeah, they need this yeah. panel of experts for sure, working hard for them, yeah. trying to trying to be part of the solution, which is key. Right, right. Now, I did ask you at the beginning, and you had a very skeptical eye, are iguanas venomous? And this didn't come from Bob's Pet Shop website, I promise you. <laughs> All right, this is Google Scholar or PubMed, not Wikipedia. I mean, I love Wikipedia for lots of things, but sometimes there's some eyebrow razors on there. No, these were some reputable sources. And 
the the reality is yes iguanas are venomous but not very venomous they're these venom glands are atrophied okay. so they produce a, a very weak harmless venom if we go back to komodo dragon what kills people or what kills animals they're finding that they actually do have some venom in their mouth correct know, some yeah lizards. they used to think it was just the bacteria right of right the bite. right but then they but found now they're, out they're that... showing some venom yeah mm-hmm. so they do have some venom but it's it's very harmless to us it's it's very weak and it's it's just probably a relic from evolution that i mean they and they're it. not gonna lie those little love bites from piccadilly were not comfortable and i did no they say right <laughs> they do have sharp teeth oh razor sharp oh like like and they, it's like serrates your skin like little right blades. you got to be yeah. careful around them they're, they're not you know they're not little fluffy little bunnies <laughs> no really no uh chris from the international reptile conservation foundation and i kind of go into that um in detail too uh just to to give his expert opinion uh about iguanas as pets and and other yeah and other dying questions you may have so check that check yeah. that episode yeah, out. Check it out yeah it's coming soon coming soon so Coming soon to a, to a podcast yes. near you. Yes, 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 right after this one. So, you know, fascinating species. We have to look at more of the Galapagos. I just, uh, I'm glad we finally got there with a, with a great species to cover. I know we're going to do the tortoise within the next few months. It's definitely got to jump on our list You know, somewhere. the other big island we've been neglecting, or Archipagio, or however you say it, mm-hmm. is Madagascar. That's coming soon. Yes, that's got to come soon. There's so many, so many awesome species there. And we, we got to go back down under. Yeah, we live in a wonderful yeah. world, Chris. We're so blessed. We just got to keep it this way, I right? I know. We've got so many animals to cover. And, you know, we're definitely going to um, go back to the oceans, not just marine iguanas, because it's really a land animal that lives in the ocean sometimes. But we've got to go back to the oceans here pretty quick and to the air. You know, there's there's a lot of bird species we need to talk about. So a lot of great stuff coming from us. So send this podcast to a friend. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. You know, we're going to keep it up and uh, look forward to uh, hearing from us next week. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.